O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Some years ago, when I was in college, I auditioned for a summer stock production of the musical Godspell, which was a big deal back in those days. And if you know the musical Godspell, you know it is a recounting of Jesus' life and ministry that's taken almost directly from the Gospel of Matthew. And in that show, there are several parables that have become part of the script. And one of the parables that was in that show was the parable, the parable of the prodigal son. And in that particular parable, there is a line in Matthew's Gospel that says, and his heart went out to him, the father's heart when he sees the son coming back from a long way off. And it's the same word in the Greek that we have with the good Samaritan when he sees the wounded man on the side of the road, it says his heart went out to him. So when we did this prodigal son parable, I had been cast uh, as the father and we were using a motif from a show that most of y'all are too young to know that was called Bonanza. So uh, back in the day, there was a Western on TV called Bonanza, and so I was supposed to be Pa Cartwright, and the prodigal son was Little Joe. So there we were on the stage of the Gilliard Auditorium, and I had one of the most stressful roles I ever had, because what I had to do was to pull out of my shirt a Frisbee that had a giant heart on it, and I had to throw it across the stage, not the way you usually throw a Frisbee, but perpendicular so you could see the heart going across. And this was fraught with peril and didn't usually go well in rehearsal, but actually in the show, I managed to do it and Little Joe managed to catch it. And so it got across that idea. But this idea of our hearts going out to someone who is in need is at the heart of this parable of the prodigal son and of today's parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, the Good Samaritan is probably the most well-known parable in all of the Bible. And many people today know or think they know what a Good Samaritan is, although they may not realize that that actually came from the Bible. Uh, you have insurance companies named Samaritan. Uh, you have uh, aid agencies named Good Samaritan. You have uh, laws named Good Samaritan. So Good Samaritan is all around our culture. And so it's very easy, if you're like me, when you see a familiar parable like this, to think, oh, I already know what that's about. Well, I hope this morning that we're going to show that there are some things that maybe none of us knew before that are worth our thinking about. So I'd like to suggest to you that in this story that we just had read by Mark, the story itself is actually three stories. The parable is only the one in the middle. So the first story is the story of Jesus and the lawyer. The second story is the parable. And the third story is a story about Jesus and his prefiguring his acts of saving love that he was going to accomplish on the cross. And there are valuable lessons for us in all three of these about what it means to live boldly for Jesus Christ in such a way that our lives make a difference. So the context for this parable, we're about midway through the Gospel of Luke. 
a couple of chapters earlier, they've been on the mountaintop. They've seen Jesus transfigured in his glory. They've come down from the mountaintop and had the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And then as we heard last week, Jesus had sent out the 72 and they had come back and Jesus had rejoiced at those who had come to faith whose names were now written in the book of life. So immediately after that is where this parable falls. So the first thing that happens is this lawyer comes up to Jesus and approaches him with a question. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Luke clues us in that perhaps this guy has slightly mixed motives. He wants to put Jesus to the test. Uh, But Jesus takes the man at his word, and he engages with him, and he doesn't just pop out some trite answer. He actually asks the man a question back and has a dialogue with him. And he says, what do you see in the law? How do you read it? Now, there's a great lesson right there for us as well that I could preach a whole sermon on, but I will not, uh, about the fact that when we encounter the ultimate questions of life, the place we ought to go to look for answers is in the Word of God, not Oprah, not all of the other things that are out there in our world. We ought to go to the Word of God because it answers every need of the heart of man. So Jesus directs this man back to the Word, and clearly this lawyer is well-versed in his Scripture because he says that What the law says is that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. Now, unless you've been under a rock for the past several years when you've been at St. Philip's, that should sound familiar to you because it is part of our liturgy in the communion service. It is literally graven on the wall to the left of the altar up there. It is what is called the great commandment because it is what Jesus himself said was the greatest commandment in the law when he was asked that later in his life. So this lawyer has answered well, and Jesus looks at him and says, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Well, we're going to get to that part in just a minute. But what I would like to ask you is how much time have you spent lately thinking about this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We live in a culture that is obsessed with the here and now, the up-to-date, and we have pushed away the idea of death, and we do everything to make us think that we are going to be young and attractive forever, no matter how many operations it takes. And Part of what Jesus is getting at here is that we need to live with eternity in mind. We live in a culture that doesn't want to face these kinds of ultimate questions. But they are hugely important because if you are concerned about what happens when you die, it changes the way that you live. And for a culture that is in despair and does not know about the joy of eternal life with Jesus, we have great good news to share. But we don't think about this question as often as we should. And the great English bishop in the 19th century, J.C. Ryle, had something to say about this. And it's interesting because what he has to say is just as applicable today in 2022 in Charleston, South Carolina, as it was back in Liverpool in the late 19th century. Listen to his words. This question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, 
deserves the principal attention of every man, woman, and child on earth. We are all sinners, dying sinners, and sinners going to be judged after death. How shall our sins be pardoned? With what shall we come before God? How shall we escape the damnation of hell? Where shall we flee from the wrath to come? What must we do to be saved? These are questions which people of every rank ought to put to themselves and never rest until they find an answer. It is, however, a question which unfortunately few care to consider. Thousands are constantly inquiring, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What, what shall we be clothed? How can we get money? How can we enjoy ourselves? How can we prosper in the world? So things have not changed that much, but you see Jesus engages this question with the lawyer and he pushes him because as Jesus looks at him, I think that this lawyer probably realizes that although he has answered correctly, that it is impossible to do what Jesus has said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Well, that pretty much knocks me out and probably most of us. And when you go on and add layer after layer after layer of being consumed with the love of God and being consumed with the love of others, it is clear that we are unable in our own strength to do this. But the beautiful thing about this commandment that I would urge you to notice is there's only one verb in this commandment, and that verb is to love, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. It is a command that captures the heart of God and the message of the Christian faith, which is all about love. Love is at the center of the universe and the center of the Trinity, and as the people of God, we are to be about love. But there is a problem. We cannot do it. We cannot love God in this way. We cannot love our neighbors in this way. And if that is what is required for salvation and to live eternally, we are all doomed. And the lawyer is smart enough to know he's doomed, and so he's trying to rescue the situation. And for a little context, remember in this time period, the Pharisees, the lawyers, the scribes, they believed that there were 613 commandments in the Old Testament, and most of them believed that they had succeeded in defining them in such a way that they could look someone in the eye and say, I have kept all these laws. Now, we know that they were wrong, but they thought that. But they also had changed the commandment about what loving your neighbor meant. And they had changed it, and the Pharisees taught in this era that loving your neighbor only meant loving people who were like you, only loving other Jews, only other loving people that are part of God's promised people. So the lawyer wants Jesus to make that clear and to let him off the hook, so he asks Jesus another question. Always dangerous to ask Jesus questions. So he gets a little more than he bargained for because he then asks, and who is my neighbor? So that brings us to the second story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And just for a little context here, the injured man in this story is clearly Jewish. And as they talk, as Jesus describes the parable, he says the man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was literally going down. 
Jerusalem is up on a mountain that's over 2,000 feet above sea level. Jericho is around 800 feet below sea level. So this was a deep, narrow, torturous pathway that wound down between the cities. And there were lots of crags and bends where there were hiding places and bandits. So it was known to be a dangerous road. So everyone hearing this is thinking, yes, yes, this all makes sense. The man has been beaten. And then they hear about the priest and the Levite going by. And even though when we see this and we think, oh, this is terrible, the priest of all people should have stopped. Actually, for the hearers of this, they might not have been that surprised. Because one of the things to understand is that priests and Levites worked at the temple. And so these men were probably on their way up to the temple. And in order to be able to work at the temple, you had to be ritually clean. You could not be defiled. And touching blood or touching even worse, a dead body would defile you and make it impossible for you to actually carry out your worship functions. So they might have given them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt as they see the man and notice they do see him, but they choose to pass by on the other side. And so everyone is waiting for the hero of the story and they are expecting that the hero of the story is gonna be a good Jewish boy or maybe a rabbi. And Jesus says something that makes their jaws drop to the ground and shocks them because what he says is that a Samaritan came by. Now, just a little background here. Most people who've been around the church know that the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along, but it is much worse than that. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other with what they considered to be righteous, godly hatred. Because you see, the Samaritans, in the eyes of the Jews, had polluted the Jewish faith. They were heretics that had once been part of the Jewish people, and they had disobeyed some of the law of God, and they had intermarried with pagans, and they had set up a rival worship site on Mount Gerazim in Samaria instead of going to Jerusalem to the temple to worship. They were the lowest of the low, and you could, as a Jew, think with righteous indignation about how terrible Samaritans were. And the Samaritans on their side felt just exactly the same way toward Jews. They might spit at each other when they went by. They would certainly never talk to each other and never imagine that the other could possibly do anything good. And yet, Jesus turns everything upside down and makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. And this is particularly rubbing salt in the wound because not long before this, a group of Samaritans had come to Jerusalem specifically to defile the Jewish temple. And they had brought in dead men's bones and littered them all around the temple so that the temple had to be closed and ritually cleaned before anyone could go in for worship. So the Samaritan is the hero, and all the people listening are shocked, and they're even more shocked when they see what happens, because the Samaritan sees the man, and then there's that great verb that means his heart went out to him. He was moved by love and compassion, and he knew this man was Jewish. He's moved with love and compassion toward this man who everyone in his experience told him should be his enemy. 
And not only is he moved with compassion, he acts on the compassion. He crosses the road, he goes to the men, he meets his needs, and he shows him mercy. He shows him undeserved love and favor. He shows him self-sacrificial love, where he gets out of his comfort zone and does things to his own detriment. He takes the man and puts him on the animal that he himself has been riding and walks alongside him. He uses up his oil and his wine to try to heal this man. And then he goes to the inn and spends his own money to put this man up and to say that he will be back to check on him and if the landlord needs more money, he will settle up with him then. It is a beautiful story of what the Samaritan did that was loving and compassionate with his heart going out to this man. It is also noteworthy what the Samaritan did not do. He did not try to figure out whether the man was worthy of help. He didn't try to figure out whether he was a Samaritan like him or if he was a Jew who should be left to just suffer. He also did not try, once he figured out the man was Jewish, to straighten out his doctrine and get him to convert before he helped him. He helped the man, and the wounded man himself, interestingly, accepts the help. Jews would not take anything from Samaritans. Being touched by a Samaritan made you unclean. So there's a little bit of mutual mercy going on here. So one of the things for us to note here is that we have a profoundly other-centered faith. Notice that in that great commandment, the verb to love, the focus is on God first, to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength proactively, and then next to love our neighbor, to look toward those who are around us. And neighbor here does not mean just the people who live next door or behind you. Um, in the Hebrew and the Greek, it has the meaning of anyone that is in your path, in your sphere of influence. It's the people you run into that you are called to be a neighbor to. And one of the things that is so interesting here is you see this idea of compassionate love and mercy being the thread that runs through Jesus' teaching that really drew people to him because it was so profoundly different from anything else that was in the culture. And part of the reason that this is true is that Christianity is the only faith that you can find anywhere where Jesus, the leader of the faith, commands you, not suggest, but commands you in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, his greatest teaching, to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. That is the most upside-down advice in the history of the world. And in that same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about what good is it if you love only those who love you. And he says that what should distinguish his followers is loving those who are enemies, praying for those who persecute us. This kind of love is the only thing that can change the world and the only thing that ever will. Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, when the Pharisees keep coming to him with all these questions, tells him two different times to go and study the Word of God and to learn what this verse means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. My friends, we live in one of the most polarized and hate-filled cultures in the history of the world, a culture where we feel virtuous about hating other people that don't agree with us because we feel it is righteous indignation. 
But Jesus says that is not the way to follow him. One of the interesting things about this is to think about how often do you pray for your enemies and for those who persecute you. I was quite stunned uh, several months ago reading through some of C.S. Lewis's letters to find this excerpt from a letter to one of his students who had become a close friend during World War II. And he talks to him about the problem of praying for your enemies and those who persecute you. And listen to what Lewis says. The practical problem about loving in one's prayers is that it is very hard work, isn't it? When you pray for Hitler and Stalin, when you pray for Hitler and Stalin, do you actually teach yourself to make the prayer real? The two things that help me are a continual grasp of the idea that one is only joining one's feeble little voice to the perpetual intercession of Christ who died for these very men. And second, a recollection as firm as I can make it of all my own cruelty, which might have blossomed under different conditions into something terrible. You and I are not at bottom so different from these ghastly creatures. Wow. So what Lewis is saying there, and he's making an assumption that we all prayed during World War II for Hitler and Stalin. And the point is to realize that no person is beyond the reach of God's saving embrace that certainly those people need to repent, certainly they would need to understand the mercy and grace of God, but we are all helpless sinners saved by grace, and so we must pray for these people who so desperately need Christ. And one of the things I would encourage you to do is to think about who in your world needs mercy shown to them, who in your world needs love shown to them. We live in an age where every study that comes out tells us that there's more anxiety, more despair, more loneliness, more addiction, more suicide than any other era in the history of our country. And so this is a time where the church doesn't need to hide. This is a time where the church needs to reach out. And I would suggest two groups particularly that should be on our radar who are so often invisible to us. First are those who are marginalized or those who are serving us that we just interact with on a transactional basis and forget that they are people made in the image of God, that we might be their one encounter with someone who knows Jesus during that day. The second is young people. So often it is daunting to try to engage with young people because we feel that they are looking into their phones all the time. But the, fa the fact of the matter is that until probably the last 50 or 60 years, it was very normal for people as they were growing up to have mentors and older people in their family and grandparents and aunts and uncles who were deeply connected with them while they were young people, who saw them, who looked into their eyes, who loved them, who were there for them, who were willing to listen. If you have a young person in your life, consider whether God may be calling you to love them more proactively. As you walk through your day, consider how God may be calling you to love more proactively. So that brings us to the third story. The third story, which is probably the least obvious one, is that as you read this parable and you watch what the Good Samaritan does, you see Jesus prefiguring for us exactly what he will do by his death on the cross. And in the early church, this 
became something that was a little bit of a sensation where it was viewed as an allegory that was taught by all of the church fathers. Um, Origen and Clement, Irenaeus, uh, Athanasius, Chrysostom, Ambrose, Augustine, all of them saw within this parable an allegory about Christ. And this is what Origen said about it. The man going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is Adam. Jerusalem is paradise, and Jericho is the world. The robbers are hostile powers. The priest is the law. The Levite is the prophets, and the Samaritan is Jesus Christ. The wounds are disobedience. The beast is the Lord's body. The end which accepts all who wish to enter is the church. The manager of the end is the head of the church to whom its care has been entrusted. And the fact that the Samaritan promises he will return represents Jesus' second coming. So this was prevalent in the early church because of the wonder that was within the early church about the saving grace of Jesus Christ. The wonder and awe that people knew they had been saved from their sins, from all that had separated them from the love of God. And as we've gotten farther away, we've realized that maybe the allegory is a little bit too much, it's reading a little too much in there, but the thing that is absolutely true that we must not throw out the baby with the bathwater is Jesus describing his ministry to us. And that hymn that we sang just before the sermon, uh, you probably have never heard before, it's an 18th century hymn written by the great Anglican clergyman John Newton most known to us as the author of Amazing Grace. But John Newton was not always a great Anglican clergyman. John Newton was a rebellious and nasty and mean teenager who signed up for the Navy and his parents were glad to get rid of him. And he went off and he was on a Navy ship and he was involved with some slave trading ships. And when he finally got onto one ship when he was 21, his crewmates decided he was so awful that they put him off the ship and sold him into slavery to get rid of him. That's pretty bad. But Newton, very ingeniously, managed to escape, and he got onto another ship to try to get back to England, and in the middle of that voyage, as they neared Ireland, a terrible storm blew up, and the ship was being bashed to and fro, and it became clear that they were all going to die. And that day, March 10th, 1748, John Newton prayed to Jesus Christ and said, Lord, show mercy to me, a sinner. And from that moment, John Newton's life began to change, and he grew in his understanding of following Jesus and of his love for who Jesus was and the amazing grace that had been shown to him. I commend to you after the service to go back and look at the words of that hymn. And I want to just recite a little bit of it. How kind the good Samaritan to him who fell among the thieves. Thus Jesus pities fallen men and heals the wounds the soul receives. Oh, I remember well the day when sorely wounded, nearly slain, like that poor man I bleeding lay and groaned for help, but groaned in vain. And he goes on to recount how Jesus, like the good Samaritan, his heart went out to John Newton, and he brought John Newton into his house and brought him into the abode of the kingdom of heaven. My friends, we need to recover that awestruck wonder of the grace and the goodness of Jesus Christ 
that empowers us to do the first things in these first two stories, to think about the kingdom of God, to think about our eternal destiny, to think about that urgent question of what must we do to inherit eternal life and to not be consumed by this world and to hold out that invitation to those who don't know Jesus to come and see what we know of this amazing Savior. And secondly, to have our heart go out to those who are our neighbors, those in our path, those who need mercy. And lastly, to rejoice that we have been saved, to rejoice that we have such a Savior full of grace. I want to close with the last stanza of the hymn we're going to sing later. If you would please bow your heads and join me in prayer. Oh, to grace how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Amen.